So brothers and sisters, in our afternoon worship services, we've been making our way through the Belgic Confession and we've been concentrating in particular the last number of uh, sessions on this confession on the doctrine of the church, which is a doctrine that Reformed churches take very seriously. And we've come to Article 29 of the Belgic Confession. You can find that on page 511 of your Book of Praise. The title of this article is The Marks of the True and the False Church. Before we read the article, I'd like to make this comment. It seems to me that when we read an article with a title like The Marks of the True and the False Church, there are two realities that exist, two realities that sort of exist like the air we breathe, two biases perhaps, two realities that I think is helpful for us just to recognize. The first is the reality that exists in our modern day Canadian church landscape where no matter what church you belong to, your church says that it is a Bible-believing church or a gospel-believing church. All churches say that. Every church says that. But the question that we might wanna ask is just because something is called a church, does that mean that it actually is a church? Is there such thing, for instance, as an unbiblical church? Is there such a thing as a church that you ought not to be part of? And in our modern era, that is a very difficult thing to say or even to discuss because we live in a modern era that promotes tolerance in many beautiful ways, but also in ways that, that perhaps is not so helpful. And so there's, a, there's the reality that perhaps some of us, perhaps many of us would be inclined to say, well, how can we even talk about a true and a false church? Because if, if believers of a particular church are sincere believers and they're sincerely d loving the Bible and loving the Lord and doing their best, then who would we be to judge that church and call it a true or a false church? Who would, be, who would we be to even talk about this. So there's, there's, that, there's this reality of this, this tolerant Canadian church landscape on the one hand. And then there's another reality that I think we have to be aware of, and perhaps just to, to, to put out there, and that's the reality that exists. This is more specific to people who have grown up or spent a lot of time in Canadian Reformed churches. And in Canadian Reformed churches, the this article about the marks of the true and the false church have played quite a big role in our church history. And part of that has to do with the fact that the Canadian Reformed churches were born out of a situation where a mother church deposed a bunch of pastors and, and kicked people out. And so because the birth moment of our federation came from a church split, where we felt we were being pushed out of another church, this article and the idea of the marks of the true and the false church have played quite a role. And I could, perhaps, perhaps we could do a little test there. We haven't read the article, but put your hand up if you know what the marks of the true church are. All right? So put them up a little bit higher. I would like, actually like to see. So there's quite a few people that could say, okay, I know what the marks of the true church are. Put your hand up if you know what the, if you could stand up and name the marks of a true Christian. So maybe one. Put your hand up if you could tell me what the attributes of the church are. Not the marks, but the attributes. So the fact that, that almost nobody can name the marks of a true Christian or what the attributes of the church are, which is the fact that we confess a holy Catholic Christian church, which we do every Sunday, 
and we also spoke about in Article 27 a number of Sundays ago, the fact that many people can name the marks of the true church but not the other ones demonstrates something, doesn't it? It demonstrates that there is a culture that exists within Canadian Reformed churches where this article in particular plays a big role. And so I think we have to be aware of that. We also, I found in my experience that people who grow up in Canadian Reformed churches tend to use this article as a filter for all kinds of things and and the language of true and false church comes up in conversations that are actually surprising to me, conversations that I'm like, why would you raise that there? But it, it, it seems to play a big part in our church culture. There's this historical popular level understanding in Canadian Reformed churches that speaks about the fact that, well, we are and our sister churches are true churches, and maybe some other Reformed and Presbyterian churches that we have recognized, but other churches are false churches. And you could argue with me that, well, that's a caricature of Canadian Reformed churches, but I would say that uh, on a popular level, that seems to exist. That seems to exist. That's certainly a way that, that I grew up. And so these two realities, on the one hand, don't judge another church, and how dare you even bring up such a subject, and then our Canadian Reformed Church culture. Those, those are, are somewhat intention, those are realities that exist as we approach Article 29. So now let's then read Article 29 and examine it together. The marks of the true and the false church. We believe that we ought to discern diligently and very carefully from the word of God what is the true church. For all sects which are in the world today claim for themselves the name of church. We're not speaking here of the hypocrites who are mixed in the church along with the good and yet are not part of the church, although they are outwardly in it. We are speaking of the body and the communion of the true church, which must be distinguished from all sects that call themselves the church. The true church is to be recognized by the following marks. It practices the pure preaching of the gospel. It maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. It exercises church discipline for correcting and punishing sins. In short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and regarding Jesus Christ as the only head. Hereby, the true church can certainly be known and no one has the right to separate from it. Those who are of of the church may be recognized by the marks of Christians. They believe in Jesus Christ as the only Savior, flee from sin and pursue righteousness, love the true God and their neighbor without turning to the right or the left and crucify their flesh and its works. Although great weakness remains in them, they fight against it by the Spirit all the days of their life. They appeal constantly to the blood, suffering, death, and obedience of Jesus Christ in whom they have forgiveness of their sins through faith in him. The false church assigns more authority to itself and its ordinances than to the word of God. It does not want to submit itself to the yoke of Christ. It does not administer the sacraments as Christ commanded in his word, but adds to them and subtracts from them as it pleases. It bases itself more on men than on Jesus Christ. It persecutes those who live holy lives according to the word of God and who rebuke the false church for its sins, greed, and idolatries. These two churches are easily recognized and distinguished from each other. There are four things that I would like to address as we look at this article. The first one is, what does the Bible say about all this? Does this distinction between true and false church find its its bearings in scripture? So what does the Bible say about it? 
what, what, if, what does church history tell us about this? Uh, then how do we understand Article 29 in relationship to the other articles of the Belgian Confession? And then finally, what are these marks of the true church, the false church, and of Christians? So I did a lot of research for this, uh, this sermon this past week, and in the end, I had two sermons worth of research. I can't go through all four of those things in one sermon, it's too much. And I do feel that this is a particularly important article to spend time on. So I'm going to preach two sermons on this article and this, this afternoon what I'm going to talk about is looking at Article 29, trying to understand how this is rooted in scripture, how it's rooted in church history, and then how do we read Article 29 in relationship to the other articles of the Belgian Confession. And then next week, we're gonna look specifically at the marks of the true church, the false church, and the marks of Christians, okay? So we're gonna, we're gonna do this in two parts. So let's first talk about what does the Bible say about all of this? Article 29 is rooted in scripture. The Bible clearly speaks about true prophets and false prophets, the true Messiah and false messiahs, the true apostles and false apostles. So let me give you a couple of examples. Jesus himself says in Matthew 7:15, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Matthew 24 and Mark 13, we read this, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive. In Acts 20, verse 29 through 30, we read this, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. In 2 Peter, chapter two, verse one, we read, but there are also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, and they will secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. 1 Corinthians 11, or 2 Corinthians 11 verse 13, such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. Paul continues in Galatians 2 verse 4, that false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Jesus Christ and to make us slaves. We can think of 1 John 4, 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Or Colossians 2, 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. So we see in scripture, that's just from the New Testament, we could also look at the Old Testament, there are many examples there, but we see from scripture that there are true prophets and there are true apostles who teach the truth about the true Messiah, the true Christ, and there are also false prophets and there are false apostles who distort the truth, who deny the sovereign Lord, who work against the freedom, uh, freedom we, the church has in Christ, ferocious, savage wolves who draw disciples away from Christ to follow themselves, introduce destructive heresies into the church and render people captive to hollow and deceptive philosophies that depend on human tradition rather than on Jesus. That's what we're taught. And then you could think of Revelation 18 where we hear about the great harlot of Babylon which seems to be false religion 
and mixed with the powers of the world. And the people of God are commanded to leave her and not share in her sins. And then you can think of the passage that we read from the book of Revelation uh, just a moment ago. Ephesus has tested and rejected false apostles. Jesus commends them for that. And they have suffered at the hands of those who say they are Jews. And uh, so if you were to continue on reading, there's other churches that have suffered at the hands of those who consider themselves Jews, consider themselves believers, but Christ says they're of the synagogue of Satan. And that to be contrasted with the true lampstands, the true churches of Asia Minor in God. And then Ephesus is warned by Jesus that if there is no repentance, that their lampstand will be removed, that they will no longer be considered a church of Christ. And so the idea that there is the true church of Jesus Christ and that there are also false churches with false apostles and false prophets and false teachers and false doctrine is an idea that we find in scripture. This is not an idea that is just made up in the Belgian Confession. So that's the first point. Then let's talk about the historical reasons or the, how history has viewed this. And this, this is where it gets a little bit hard to understand because we have to try to, to, to get out of our own culture a little bit and understand what Christians in the past have thought about this. Christians in the past would have had no concept of denominationalism, of the, the plethora, the many denominations, the many different kinds of churches that you can find in our modern era. We can have, you know, here in Ottawa, you can have all kinds of different churches. You can have Reformed churches of various kinds, and you can have Presbyterians, and you can have Baptists, and you can have Evangelical Free, and you can have Pentecostal, and you can have all these different kinds of churches. Reverend Van, Van Rungen, who wrote, an, uh, he was a, a pastor in our sister churches, uh, specifically in Australia, he wrote an excellent little book, if you can get the, the copy of it. It's called True and False, How to Read Article 29 of the Belgian Confession. not the local congregation which had most attention in the ancient Christian church, but the one worldwide Catholic church. And so we discussed this when we looked at Article 27 a number of weeks ago. This whole idea of various different kinds of churches that you could choose from was not something that existed in ancient times. People thought even less of their own local congregation and compared to others, they thought about being part of the one holy Catholic Christian church. So the categories that people had in their mind throughout most of church history is that there is a singular, the, the singular, the church of Jesus Christ, the true church of Jesus Christ, and then there are also false churches. And either you are part of the true church of Jesus Christ, the one holy Catholic Christian church, or you're part of a false church. That's, that's the categories that they thought in. And so a couple of examples from, the, uh, from church history. Tertullian, writing uh, in the, the late 100s after Christ, through to the beginning of the, uh, the, in the, in the early 200s, writes, what is there then in common between Athens and Jerusalem, between heretics and Christians? He sees these two categories. Athens, Jerusalem, heretics, Christians, false church, true church. Cyprian of Carthage, writing in the early 200s, writes, the, the spouse of Christ, there is a spouse of Christ and there is an adulterous, an apostate church. Those are the categories they're thinking. They're not thinking about, there's all kinds of different denominations around though. There is the spouse of Christ and then there is an apostate church. There's a false church. 
Christotum of Antioch, writing in the late 300s, writes this, the scriptures let us know where the true church can be found, and deceivers too have their churches. So scripture knows, let us, lets us know where the true church is found, deceivers have their other churches. So early Christians, they were reading scripture, and they were following it, and they understood that, that either you are part of the true church of Jesus Christ, the spouse of, of Christ, the Jerusalem, or you are part of the heretical apostate Athens apostate church. Those are the categories that they thought in. And so if you were to fast forward now through a whole bunch of church history and you get uh, right to the time of the Reformation in 1541, Luther, in a, in a letter he writes against Hanswurst, he writes, there have always been two churches, the true and the false. And he's looking back through church history and he's saying there's always been two, the true and the false. So we've looked at, at, at scripture briefly. We've looked a little bit at church history. So now we come to Article 29. And here we have to learn that we, that we have to make sure that we read Article 29 in the context of the rest of the Belgian Confession. Okay? In fact, we must especially read Article 29, the marks of the true and the false church, in the light of Article 27, which is the Catholic Christian Church. Okay? That's very important. I'm going to repeat that one more time. It might sound like, well, big deal. This is very important. We must read Article 29 in light of Article 27. We must read the marks of the true church in the light of the attributes of the church being the Catholic Christian Church. So let me give you a quote here from Reverend Clarence Bauman, who's a, a pastor in one of, our, uh, one of our churches here in Ontario. He writes this, setting the word true beside the word church does not add anything to the word church. Instead, the word true has a place only where there's a counterfeit church around, and we want to distinguish the real thing from the fake. That observation helps us to understand that the true church spoken of in Article 29 is not a different one than the one confessed in Articles 27 and 28. It's the same church, be it that it is now contrasted with an imitation church. The true church of Article 29 then is the one Catholic or universal church of Article 27. So let me repeat that last line. The true church of Article 29 is then the one Catholic and universal church of Article 27. That's really important. If you forget everything that I say here this afternoon, remember that. Read Article 29 in light of Article 27. It's very important. So first, to, to just sort of flesh that out a little bit, you must read Article 29 in light of the Catholicity of the church. The Catholicity of the church. The fact that the church is universal across all time and places. The Belgian Confession speaks of the true church and the false church in the singular. It doesn't say true churches. It says the true church and the false church in the singular. And the reason it says the true church and not a true church or the true churches, it's because it's referring to the one holy Catholic Christian church. So when you talk about true church, you have to put the word the in front of it and not a uh, or, you know, thinking that there are many true churches. And so that's important because when people or pastors or synods of your federation 
talk about true churches, such as the Canadian Reformed churches are true churches, or we recognize those churches as true churches, or those churches as not being true churches, that is completely incorrect. And it's not what we confess. It's incorrect. And it's not how Christians have thought about God's church throughout all of church history. It's not what scripture teaches. There is one holy Catholic Christian church, the true church of Jesus Christ. You have to, you have to really pay attention to that. So let's, let me just read Article 27 as a reminder for us. We believe and profess one Catholic or universal church, which is a holy congregation and assembly of the true Christian believers who expect their entire salvation in Jesus Christ are washed in his blood and are sanctified and sealed by the Holy Spirit. This church has existed from the beginning of the world and will be to the end, for Christ is an eternal king who cannot be without subjects. This holy church is preserved by God against all the fury of the whole world, although for a little while it might look very small and as extinct in the eyes of man. Thus, during the perilous reign of Ahab, the Lord kept for himself 7,000 persons who had not bowed the knee to Baal. Moreover, this holy church is not confined or limited to one particular place or to certain persons, but is spread and dispersed throughout the entire world. Yet it is joined and united with heart and will in one and the same spirit by the power of faith. So you can think about the singular true church of God a little bit like, like Lake Ontario. So if you kids were to go to Toronto and go up the CN Tower, put your hand up if you've been up the CN Tower. Any of you kids been up the CN Tower? A bunch of adults have too. So you go up to the CN Tower and you can see Lake Ontario, but you can't see the whole thing. No human being can see the whole of Lake Ontario by climbing up a tower. God can see the whole lake, but we can't. But if you were to go to Sandbanks Provincial Park, you can see Lake Ontario. And then if you were to go to Kingston and go onto the shore of Lake Ontario, you could see Lake Ontario. And Toronto, you could see Lake Ontario. And St. Catharines, you could see Lake Ontario. And you could go to those spots at different times and in different seasons, and you could see Lake Ontario, but you still wouldn't see the whole thing. And in a similar way, the true church of Christ, the universal Catholic church of Christ, can be seen at various times and places, in different places, but you can't see the whole thing. God can see all of it as it, tra- as it passes through all of time and all places. The one true, holy, Catholic Christian church. And so local churches, we don't talk about local churches as true churches. We don't talk like that. We talk about local churches as being manifestations of the one true church, the one church of Christ, not as individual true churches. That's not how we speak as Reformed people. Dr. Klaas Schilder was an an important person in Canadian Reformed church history, was very careful with that. He was insistent that we don't talk about individual true churches, but we talk about the one true church. So for instance, somebody, uh, he was told once that somebody was going to migrate to Tasmania, Australia, and his response was this. I hope that you will be able to find the true church there. He didn't say, I hope you'll find a true church there. He said, I hope you find the true church there. You'll find a local church that is a manifestation of the one Catholic church of Jesus Christ. And so this, maybe you're sitting here and you think, well, this is kind of semantics. This is like, oh, you gotta be careful with your words. But words are important. Words are very important. The way you use words can, can change how you think about things. 
And there's, there's all kinds of wrong things that you get into when you begin to talk in, in ways that we don't find in this article, when you begin to talk about true churches. What ends up, when, when, you, when you talk like that, what happens is you tend to jump straight to the marks of the true church without reading them in lights of the attributes of the church in Article 27. What happens is you end up being able to raise your hand because you know what the marks of the true church are, but you don't know what the attributes of the church are. You know more about the marks of the true church than you do about the Catholicity of the church. And Reverend Van Rungen in his little book speaks uh, numerous times, he says, that we really, we really don't know what to do with the Catholicity of the church as reformed people because we don't pay enough attention to it. And so you get, into, you get into strange ideas there. You also will end up tending to identify the church in a more narrow and sectarian way if you pay attention to the Article 29 without paying attention to Article 27. You'll end up identifying the church in a more narrow and sectarian way rather than in a broader Catholic way as you ought to. So you need to be careful with words. Words are important. The true church. The one Catholic Christian church. And this one Catholic Christian church is united in apostolic faith. What do we mean by that? When Guido de Bray wrote the Belgian Confession, he included a letter to Philip II when it was thrown over Philip's wall in order to give the king uh, the Belgian Confession. He wrote a letter to it, and in that letter he writes this. From this confession, we trust that you will see that we are wrongly called uh, schismatics, promoters of disunity, rebels, and heretics. For we uphold and profess the chief heads of the Christian faith comprehended in the creeds. What he was trying to demonstrate to Philip II is say, if you read his confession, you, rec you recognize that we are in agreement with the ancient church. We're in agreement with the apostolic creeds, the ecumenical creeds. So I'm not going to belabor that. I spoke extensively on that when we looked at Article 27. But the point is, is that the true church of Jesus Christ holds to the true faith of the Apostles' Creed. And so, when you think about Lord's Day 7, for instance, in the Heidelberg Catechism, what is true faith? It talks about true faith being a sure knowledge and a firm confidence. And then in question and answer 22, it says, what then must a Christian believe? So what's the content of this true faith? All that is promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary, what are these articles? And it's the Apostles' Creed. So the true church of Jesus Christ is the church of apostolic faith as summarized in the apostolic creeds, the Apostles' Creed, and that is what true believers, because Article 27 speaks of true believers, true believers believe the apostolic faith. They believe the Apostles' Creed and what that Apostles' Creed teaches. And so the true church of Christ is characterized by its Catholicity and its apostolic faith, its faith in the teaching of the apostles as found in the ancient church and in the ancient creeds. So that's, that's further shown by the only other instance in the Belgian Confession where the word true church is mentioned, and that's in Article 9 of the Belgian Confession. So Article 9 of the Belgian Confession, in the last paragraph, it says this.
That's on page 502 if you're, if you're interested in uh, reading it with me. Moreover, we must observe the distinct offices and works of these three persons towards us. So this article is speaking about the scripture proof for the uh, triune God. The Father is called our creator by his power, the Son and our, uh, our savior and redeemer by his blood. The Holy Spirit is our sanctifier by his dwelling in our hearts. The doctrine of the Holy Trinity has always been maintained and preserved in the true church since the time of the apostles to this very day over against Jews and Muslims and against false Christians and heretics. And then it gives a list of those heretics. And then it says, in this doctrine, therefore, we willingly receive the three creeds of the apostles of Nicaea and of Athanasius. Likewise, that which is in accordance with them is agreed upon by the earthly fathers. So you see that in the Belgian Confession itself, it is the Trinitarian apostolic faith as summarized in the creeds and a special focus on the work of Jesus Christ for our salvation that stands at the heart of what it means to be a true church. The true church is not defined as a church that agrees with everything that's found in the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgian Confession, and the Canons of Dort. Of course, that cannot be the case since those documents have not existed for most of church history. The true church is defined as the one holy Catholic Christian church united in faith, true faith, as summarized in the Apostles' Creed. So that's not my opinion. I'm hoping you're seeing that that is what we confess in our confessional documents. That is what our three forms of unity teach us. That's what they teach us. And so Reverend Van Rungen says on page 47 of his book, the term true church must be understood in the light of true faith, which is faith in the triune God and in Christ Jesus, God's Son incarnate, whom we know from the sacred events recorded in the New Testament and confessed in the creeds. Not in the three forms of unity, in the creeds. Apostolic, creedal faith unites the one true Catholic Christian church. So Van Rongen continues and he says this, the point in Guido's Debray's day was this, who are maintaining the biblical truth as it has been expressed in the ancient creeds? Which church can claim the legal continuation of the ancient Christian church? The Apostles' Creed will play a dominant role in our studies on the distinction between true and false. So we've looked at what, what scripture has said about true and false. We've looked at some ancient church history as well as some more recent church history, and then we've looked at the Belgian Confession and understanding how to read Article 29 in light of the other articles, specifically Article 27. And so we come to the conclusion that when we speak about the true church, singular, the true church, we are speaking about the holy Catholic Christian church adhering to the ecumenical creeds as the ancient church has done. And if you take that proper understanding of the true church, then it becomes clear to you what the, the reformers were talking about in the Belgian Confession when they were talking about false churches. And what they were talking about when they were talking about the false church or false churches, they were talking about two groups in particular. They were talking about the Roman Catholic Church and they were talking about the Anabaptist churches. So, the reformers, on the basis of what we've just talked about, would declare that the Roman Catholic Church is a false church. Guido de Brad doesn't say that in so many words in his Belgian Confession because they're under supreme persecution, but he, he certainly says it in other words. 
Luther and all the reformers believed this. Luther, Luther of course, he wanted to be a, a source of reformation from within the Roman Catholic Church, which he considered at the time the one true church. And then after some time, it became clear to him that the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church were not interested in, in reforming, and so that's where he begins to understand that the Roman Catholic Church's leaders are beginning to establish themselves as a false church. And so as early as the 1520s, Luther calls the Pope the Antichrist. Now, if we hear somebody call somebody the Antichrist, we don't think about that literally. We just sort of think they're using that as a term to, to say, well, that's a bad person. But, but Luther really thought that was true, that that was indeed the case that the Pope in particular as the head of the Roman Catholic Church was leading that church into falsehood and he was leading them away from Christ. And so he was uh, 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 anti-Christ. We also know that, that Guido de Bre believed that because uh, when we look especially at the articles of, about the church in the Belgian Confession and if you were to open Calvin's Genevan uh, French, or French confession beside it, you'd see that Guido de Bray, which was written before the Belgian confession, Guido de Bray, he's borrowing a lot from Calvin's French confession. You can see that he's got lots of, he's borrowing parallels, some wording, some of the structure. And in the French confession, in article 28 of Calvin's French confession, it says, in talking about the true church and the false church, it says, therefore we condemn the papal assemblies. Calvin was condemning them as a false church, and Guido de Bray was as well, although he doesn't quite say it as clearly. We also know it from one other very interesting historical fact. Before Guido de Bray wrote the Belgian Confession, he was involved in some debate through writings with a monk, a Parisian monk from Paris, named Nicole Brenier. And Nicole Brenier wrote a, a, a leaflet or a, a booklet called Le, Le Bouclier de la Foi, The Shield of the Faith. And in this, this, uh, this booklet, The Shield of the Faith, he was telling people that the, the Protestants are a false church. The Protestants are false, and the Roman Catholic Church is the true Catholic apostolic church. And so Guido de Bray, in 1555, before he writes the Belgian Confession, he writes a response to Nicole Brenier, and he writes a, a booklet called La Bastion de la Foi, which is the, the staff, or the stick of the faith. And then the subtitle is this, for squashing the enemies of the gospel and by which we can know the ancient character of our faith and the true church. So they liked long subtitles back in those days. So he writes this booklet in response to this monk who's claiming the, the, church is the, Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church is the true church. And he argues that no, the Roman Catholic Church is not the true church because they have given up on the apostolic faith as expressed in the creeds. They've given up specifically on the work of Jesus Christ and what he does in his grace for believers. And so he's saying that Roman Catholic Church is, is a false church because of the fact it's given up on the ancient creeds. Then he writes the Belgian Confession, and then shortly after that, one year after that, he writes a revised version of his booklet, La Bastion de la Foi, sort of an enlarged, enlarged version of it. So uh, Reverend Van Rungen, in his, in his book, he concludes that if you look at those and you understand historically that there's, we know what was going on in Guido de Bray's mind. You know that when he wrote Article 29 of the Church, he was specifically thinking that the Roman Catholic Church was a false church because it did not adhere to the ancient creeds and the work of Christ. They were deviating from what the church, the ancient church, had always confessed about Jesus Christ. So when you read Article 29, and it speaks about the marks of the false church. The false church, you have to understand, in Guido de Bray's mind was primarily the Roman Catholic Church of his day. There was another group that he was thinking about, and that was 
the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists. So the Anabaptists are, today their, their, uh, their descendants would be groups like the Mennonites. Although the Mennonites today are very different in what they believe and how they act than how the Anabaptists were in Guido de Bresde. So it, the Anabaptists as a group in Guido de Bresde, we don't find that same group present today. They're not Baptists, by the way. The Baptist churches of today grew out of Reformed churches later on. They don't find trace their roots to the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists were part of what they called the Radical Reformation. They were a group in Guido de Bresde that were opposed to civil government. They rejected all state authority. And so they uh, also, especially in Guido de Bresde in his area, they were willing to fight violently in order to create a righteous kingdom of God here on earth. So they were willing to take up arms against civil government in order to create, create a kingdom here on earth. So in the early 1530s, for instance, the Anabaptists took over a city in Germany called Munster, and they kind of wanted to create the New Jerusalem, and so they had their own king, and they started practicing all kinds of weird things, including polygamy, and they predicted that the world was gonna end, and it was this messianic kingdom that they had created. And so you get things in the Belgian Confession, for instance, like at the end of Article 36 where we read, for that reason we condemn the Anabaptists and other rebellious people and in general all those who reject the authorities and the civil officers, subvert justice, introduce a communion of goods and overturn the decency that God has, rejected among, has established among men. The problem, of course, in Guido de Bresde was that the king, Philip, who was persecuting Protestants, didn't see too much of a difference. He just painted all the Protestants with the same brush, and so Guido de Bresde really wanted to make it clear that we're not those guys. We're not those guys. However, the Reformers would not have just said that the Anabaptists were, were false churches primarily because they fought the civil government. That wasn't the number one reason why, why they were a false church. The Anabaptists said that they believed in grace alone, through faith alone, but they had this huge emphasis on how your personal faith had to lead to personal transformation in your life, and that you had to be able to see that in all kinds of ways. And so what that did is that basically made that their own works were a real part of their salvation. There was a heavy focus on that. So in, in, in everyday life of, uh, of an Anabaptist uh, believer at that time, it was a lot of uh, works righteousness. And they had very rigorous discipline for their members. And, and they really had, you had to be a really good upstanding person. And if you weren't, well then people would separate from you. So the Anabaptists were always splitting churches because no, nobody was ever good enough because the church was never pure enough. And because they thought that you had to exhibit all these signs of, of transformation in your life, that is the reason that they rejected infant baptism. They said believers only baptism because to be part of the church means that you have to demonstrate your faith in everyday life and you do that also through baptism. So they didn't have this well-developed covenantal theology. They said no, it was, it was, their, their lack of infant baptism was born more out of this works righteousness. And so you read, for instance, in Article 34, uh, you read things like this. For that reason, we reject the error of the Anabaptists who are not content with a single baptism received only once and who also condemn the baptism of the little children of believers. But again, this is not the reason that Guido de Bray and the Reformers thought of Anabaptists as false churches. After all, it's that their, their lack of baptizing infants is called an error. It's not called a heresy. And there is a difference between those two words. An error is a, is a mistaken interpretation of scripture. It's wrong. But a heresy is something that breaks the apostolic faith as expressed in the confessions, in, in the creed, sorry. So the reason that the Anabaptists were especially 
considered false churches was because they denied that Christ assumed human fle- the human fle- flesh of his mother Mary. So Menno Simons, he had this doctrine called the doctrine of the celestial flesh of Christ. Mennonites who come from Menno Simons today do not believe this. So if you were to look at Belgian Confession Article 18, for instance, you would read, contrary to the heresy of the Anabaptists, note they use the word heresy here, who deny that Christ assumed human flesh of his mother, we therefore confess that Christ partook of the flesh and blood of, uh, of the children, etc. And so that was the big, the big problem of Anabaptists in their day. They had denied what the creeds profess. They had denied the faith of the ancient church, the apostolic faith, and so they could not be considered manifestations of the true church of Christ. They were considered a false church. So, what have we done? We've looked at how this article is rooted in scripture. We've looked at how the church historically has spoken about this. We've looked how Article 29 must be read in light of Article 27 and then the rest of the Belgian Confession. And we've learned that Guido de Bre, as he wrote this, was obviously thinking when he was thinking about false churches in terms of the Roman Catholic Church and the Anabaptist churches. So where does that leave us? Article 29 says that we ought to dil- discern diligently and very carefully from the word of God what is the true church for all sects which are in the world today for themselves, uh, claim for themselves the name of church. And here, Guido de Bray is not saying that, look, there's the true church and there's false churches and then there's this in-between third group of sects. He's not saying that. If you read to the end of the first paragraph, it's obvious that he, these sects that he's talking about are the false church. They're people that claim the name of church but they're actually the false church. There's just these two groups like the Christians have understood throughout all of history. So a church, any local church, is either a local manifestation of the true church of Christ, the one holy Catholic Christian church of all times and places, as defined by the ancient apostolic creeds, or a local congregation is a false church. Those are your historic options as taught in our Reformed Confessions. Next week, I'm gonna talk to you about how you identify whether a local congregation is indeed part of the true church by using the marks of the church. But let me me leave us with this, uh, a question to make us think. Sort of a case study. How would you answer this question? Is a local Baptist church a false church? Maybe we could put it this way. Let's, let's say the Reformed Baptist Church, not too far from here, preaches the solas, preaches the tulips of Calvinism, but understands the covenant in a different way so that they understand that the baptism as a sign and seal of God's promises should only be given to those who are believers. Would you say that that church is a false church? Now, some of you might be thinking, what a dumb kind of question is that? Like, that's an insulting question. How, how can you even judge that? If you're a Baptist here today, maybe you're chuckling inside or, or you know, smirking because you're like, really, you guys ask that kind of question? Like, that just seems the most ridiculous thing, and how dare you decide that you're gonna pronounce my church to be a false church? This, the question might seem silly to you, but hopefully you can see how that would arise, at least. That question might arise as we look at this article. And. Understand, of course, that the reformers, all of the reformers always said 
that you can find true believers in false churches. They didn't deny that ever. Of course you can find true believers in false churches. Others of you might hear that question and perhaps you've been raised on a diet, a Canadian Reformed diet of true and false churches language and, and, and you're used to churches making pronouncement or a federation making pronouncements about those people are true churches and those people aren't. And you might hear me ask that question, is a local Baptist church a, a false church? And you might be saying, well, of course it is and don't you dare say off the pulpit something different because then we're gonna slide into denominationalism. So, how would you approach a question like that? I think that it could be instructive for us just to think a little bit about, about something a little bit related. Baptist churches didn't exist as they exist today in the time of the Reformers, but there were other churches. How did the Reformers view Lutheran churches? How did the Reformers view Anglican churches? There was most likely Lutheran churches in Guido de Bres day, not too far away from them. They don't get mentioned in the Belgian Confession. Lutherans, Lutherans and Zwinglian churches, they have a doctrine of the Lord's Supper that does not agree with the Belgian Confession, Article 35. A Zwinglian or Lutheran would not agree with what we confess in the Belgian Confession, Article 35. But listen to this, in 1618, the Synod of Dort, from which we get the Canons of Dort, invited the Zurich Lutheran Church to attend the Synod. Francis Turretin, the Genevan Italian reformer and a very earnest defender of the Calvinist theology of the Synod of Dort, writing in the 1600s, indicates that the Lutheran and Zwinglian churches are faithful churches, manifestations of the true church of God, even if they're wrong about the Lord's Supper. The reformers considered Lutheran churches true, to be part of the true church of Christ. What will Anglicans? In Article 30 of the Belgian Confession, we read that we need ministers, pastors, elders, and deacons, that this is how Christ has instituted the leadership of the church. They form the council of the church. Anglicans would disagree with us. They would not be able to agree with Article 30 of the Belgian Confession. They have bishops, they have a moral hierarchy in their, in their church government. They don't agree with the way that we do that. Anglicans were recognized by our Reformed Church Fathers as members of the true Church of Christ. Anglican church leaders served at the Synod of Dort, and one Anglican bishop was a very influential member of the Synod. At the Synod of Dort, actually, those Anglicans approved the Belgian Confession officially, except for what the Belgian Confession talks about church government. So how could that be? How could it be that in the past, our Reformed Church forefathers considered Lutheran churches with a, with a wrong view of Lord's Supper, and Anglican churches with a wrong view of church government, how could they say that those were congregations of the one true church of Jesus Christ? Well, it should be, I hope, clear to you by now that the one true church of Christ, the Catholic Christian church, is not defined by subscription to our Reformed confessions. Even when it comes to important topics like the Lord's Supper and church government, the criterion for distinguishing between true and false faithfulness or unfaithfulness is faithfulness or unfaithfulness to the ancient apostolic faith of the creeds and their focus on the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's what we confess. So now then, what about those Baptist, those Reformed Baptist churches here in Ottawa, of which there are actually quite a few? 
Are they false churches? Or are they manifestations of the one true church of Jesus Christ? Be it that they might have errors in regards to their doctrine of, infant, of baptism. What do you think? Let me tell you the answer. The answer is that we're gonna talk about it next week. Chew on that question for a while. Perhaps we can talk about it in our small groups. We're gonna come to some specific conclusions about that as we examine the marks of the true church, including the mark of the pure administration of the sacraments. So let's do that next week and let's pray together now using Lord's Day 21 as our model for prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, we believe in you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we believe, Lord, that from the beginning of the whole human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, you have been gathering and defending and preserving for yourself by your spirit and word in the unity of true faith, apostolic faith, a church that you have chosen to everlasting life. And we praise you, Lord, and we thank you that we together as a body here and we as individuals are and forever shall remain living members of that one true church. Hear our prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.